0: As Christians, I think we need to really press in to see what's the Christ-centered response. And something that came to mind this week is a passage from Isaiah chapter 9. And this would be familiar to you if you've been around you know, church around Christmas. But this is talking about Jesus. It says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace." Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You see, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And there's no peace, real, lasting, true peace, apart from Jesus Christ, And we serve King Jesus, who rules his kingdom with justice and with righteousness. And his kingdom has nothing to do with racism, with white supremacy, with violence, hatred, or division. And where Jesus reigns, there is peace. And this peace that he brings is accomplished by the zeal of the Lord, not by our political achievements or by violence or any other means so the christ-centered and biblical response is to condemn racism and point people to the prince of peace that's what we need and if you want to read a little bit more of a formal uh, response fleshing this out a little bit more our denomination the evangelical free church of america has a resolution against racism that was adopted at our general conference And it's a a great document to check out. I have copies of it for you at the back table if you'd like to read it. Um, I printed out some. I also have a few articles that are from uh, some other leaders within our network of churches that address the recent issues in Charlottesville and elsewhere. So please check those out. Well, I think we, we need to go to the Lord in prayer when we talk about an issue like this. So let's pray. God of peace, we plead with you now to bring peace to our nation and our community here. We pray that you would protect people from violence today, from things that may be happening in Berkeley or in San Francisco or around the country, Lord. We pray that you would silence the voices of hatred and racism. We ask for mercy over the division that exists between people. Bring peace, Lord. Bring reconciliation. Bring people to an understanding that the the brokenness that we share, the division that we cause, can only be reconciled through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in you, Jesus, different ethnicities are brought together. Paul wrote to the Jews and Greeks these words. to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which He put to death their hostility. Lord, put to death our hostility. We beg you, bring peace. And Lord, we, we also pray this morning for mercy on those who've been affected by the hurricane and flood in Texas. God, spare lives even now. We pray for those who have perished and their, the families of those who have perished. We pray that you would bring peace to them. And Lord, provide the resources and the relief needed for these thousands of people who may be displaced or their homes underwater or injured, Lord, We pray that you would have mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, Well, we're continuing our series in the Psalms, the Sons of Korah, and we're talking about worship. And we've started out here in our series in Psalms 42, 43, 44, and that's what we've looked at the last few weeks. And the writers of the Psalms who've been writing those have been crying out things like, why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Awake, why are you sleeping, Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Rise up and come to our help. Well, this morning, we're coming to Psalm 45 and we're totally changing the tune. A very different psalm. Psalm 45 follows these psalms of distress and now comes in with a completely different song. It's a wedding song. It's a song given at a wedding ceremony of a king. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of poetry in all the Bible. So open up to Psalm 45 with me. Psalm 45 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to let you borrow one this morning. If you don't own one, you can keep it. We would love to have you follow along with us as we walk through this passage. Psalm 45 is where we'll be this morning. Now, as we read this wedding song, we're going to get a sense of the joy and the majesty of a union of a king and his bride. And, and as the songwriter sings, he's addressing both the groom and the bride. Sort of the groom first here, and then the bride later on in this song. And, and that's kind of how we're going to approach this passage and read it. But what I want to do here is let me set the stage for this event. And then we'll read the psalm in its entirety. So let me set the stage here. I want you to imagine yourself at a royal wedding ceremony of one of the ancient kings of Israel. Okay, you're sitting in the viewing area of a great palace covered in gold and precious jewels and ivory. All the nobles in the royal family are seated at the front. The choicest foods are laid out on a banquet table off to the side. The prince and his bride are sitting at the, the front in the place of honor and everyone in the room is abuzz with the joy and the wonder at the spectacle of this wedding. A king is getting married. Dignitaries are giving speeches in honor of them. And then a master poet, a songwriter, one of the sons of Korah, stands up to sing. And you can, I, I can just imagine everyone stops and pauses to listen and leans in and tries to listen to this beautiful lyric and song that's going to come from this master songwriter. And this is what he sings aloud to them, Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall before you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Beyond your companions, your robes are all fragrant, fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. Hear, O oh daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth, and I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Wow. This beautiful song at this wedding is these two different addresses, one to the groom and one to the bride, and sort of Sandwiched there in that middle, you have, and you have this introduction on one end and a conclusion. And I just want to spend one moment talking about the introduction, then we'll launch into what he says to the groom. If you look back at verse 1 with me, the songwriter sort of tells us about his song as he starts. He says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. The poet is so moved by the beautiful union of the king and his bride that he can't help but write this song. It wells up from within him. It comes out of his heart as he's so moved and sees what's going on. I don't know if you've ever felt like that before, um, but have you, ever, have you ever been at a wedding, uh, a, a farewell party, a graduation, a funeral, some special occasion where you just felt in your heart you had to say something to the person of honor? Or say something to someone that was there who was hurting. Something that just welled up in you and you said, I can't leave until I say this. A deep desire to encourage someone or to give them a hug or to just say that you love them or that you are, are, are there for them, that you care. Well, I, I had this happen when um, two dear friends, our interns, Dakota and Megan, moved to Chicago like three or four weeks ago. Um, they had been serving here with us for a couple years and I had been walking through life with Dakota and Megan through all kinds of ups and downs and been, I did their premarital counseling and did their wedding and been walking through their internship with them and mentoring them. And I, I, my tendency, I, I often will like stuff emotions when somebody's leaving and I'll just, you know, shake hands, sayonara. And I got to this point where I was at lunch with them and it was a little too much and I couldn't, I didn't know what to do. But it, it, what happened is it sort of welled up in me that I cannot leave until I say this thing that I feel like is on my mind that I want to share with them. It's like I could not, like my kids are like, come on, let's go. And like, no, I cannot leave until I say this. It, it was like coming from inside me. I, 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 I finally got this moment. I was able to just give both of them a big hug, told them that I loved them and I said this to them, something that i have been saying to them for two years and I wanted to leave them with. God cares more about who you are than what you do. And I knew in that moment they were heading off to school and they were going to be in a high-pressure environment. That was what the Lord had put on my heart to say, and I felt it welling up in me. It's like I could not stop myself. I had to say it. And I get the sense that this songwriter is saying, my heart overflows with this pleasing theme. I cannot help. I have to write these words and sing this song. I can see him standing there before the king and his bride, tears welling up in his eyes as he recites his song out of his love for them and his tribute to them on their special day. So let's look at what he says. First, we're going to look at what he says to the groom, which is verses 2 to 9. All right, so he addresses the king in verses 2 to 9, and look at how he describes the king in verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. He says, man, you are a good-looking guy. But he does something incredibly unexpected because you'd think after he says that, he may launch into some description of this guy's physical traits. He might say, man, you got that chiseled chin, man. It's awesome. You are ripped. But he doesn't, look at what he does here. He says, you are the most handsome of among the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. You see, he says that the king's beauty does not come from his physical appearance, but the fact that grace is on his lips. In other words, the king's speech and his actions are with a graciousness that is unmatched. So his beauty lies in his character, his wisdom, his kindness towards his people. And that in turn evokes this divine blessing. Therefore, you're blessed by God. God has given him this graciousness. Contrast this with how we think about leaders today. What defines handsomeness or strength? Think about the type of rhetoric you see blasted around on your Facebook page or on the web or with your friends or with leaders in, across this country. There, are, there is so much selfishness, violence, hatred, and hurt in people's words. And, and our leaders often embody the exact opposite, which is what the NIV, the version, NIV version says in verse 2, lips that are anointed with grace. I don't know about you, but I long for more gracious speech. I long for a king who is like this king in Psalm 45 one who is called beautiful because of his grace and wisdom and gentleness and kindness towards people. But you know what? As gracious as he is, this is not a weak king, he's powerful. He's a mighty warrior. Look at verses 3 to 5. This king has a sword, and he's riding out victoriously with razor-sharp arrows. So just imagine what he looks like as he's sitting there. I kind of imagine at his wedding, he may have been dressed like you see a royal wedding in England, or you see a, a military officer who gets married and is decked out in their military uniform, and you see their bars of rank, and they've got their medals hung off of their jacket, They may have a sword or firearm, or They've got their perfectly polished black boots. They are decked out, and the impression that we're supposed to get is of strength and of prestige, a man trained for battle. But here we have to ask, what battle is he trained for? What cause is this king going to fight for? Look at verse 4. Don't miss this. This is the center of what he is about. The poet writes that this king rides into battle for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Okay, why these three things? Why truth and meekness and righteousness? Well, as far as truth, this king is concerned with the things that are central to God's kingdom. He cares about what's right in the eyes of the Lord. It doesn't just mean truth as in accuracy of facts. It's about the reliability and the firmness of the promises of God's character and who he, who he is and what he's doing. This king also fights for meekness. It's another way of saying humility. Okay? A, a good definition of humility is understanding your proper relationship or status before God. It's understanding who you are as a creature with the Creator. So this king is not pompous. He's not self-serving. He is an agent of God's rule and a servant to the people. He's meek. He's also fighting for righteousness. This is actually a legal term. Righteousness means justice. It has to do with fighting for the cause of what is right and what is just. So this king is aiming to serve the Lord and make his kingdom known and to have justice be served. Now, this is completely different from the normal pattern of ancient kings. If you study or read anything about other ancient kings, kingship in the ancient Near East was viewed as an office for capricious, prideful, and autocratic rulers. You did what you wanted because you had the power. But a king of Israel, of God's people, a representative of the Lord, was to be a warrior for truth and humility And righteousness. That's what this king is all about. Now, verse 6 sort of takes a weird turn. If you're looking at the words here with me in verse 6, there's a double meaning that starts here in verse 6. Okay, look at the line here. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. It seems that the songwriter has all of a sudden turned to address God instead of the king. But that's not what's happening. What's weird here and what's interesting, it's hard for us to understand because this is layers of poetry happening here. The king in ancient Israel was sitting as a divine ruler from God's authority and was sitting on David's throne that God established. So the, the songwriter, in a strange way, can sort of address the king using this godlike language. He's actually speaking about the truth of God's kingdom and God's throne being God-generated, and at the same time, the king being a representative of God and almost God-like in what he does. Now, he's not God, but he's representing God. So, God, your throne is forever and ever. That is true, but it's like he's saying and he's making this bridge that, that, that he wishes that this king would, would be on that same throne and carry that mantle and would carry on forever and would, would be a, a, a ruler like God is, loving righteousness and hating wickedness. Now, this imagery of the kind of God-like language continues in verse 7. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Now, the, he's actually talking about two things. There's a double meaning there as well, because he's talking about literally what the king was like in that moment, and a symbol of what the king represented as a ruler. So here's what would happen. Literally, as a man would prepare for his wedding day, a a, 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 a guy would have to figure out a way to not be smelly for his wedding day. Okay, they didn't have showers, no dove for men, Okay, no deodorant, you know, whatever. How in the world are you going to keep in an arid climate in the desert from being sweaty and smelly on this, your most special day? Literally what they would do in the ancient world, is you would strip down and maybe wash a little, but you would take fragrant oil, oil that is infused with spices, and you would rub it on your body. You'd stick it in your armpits, you know, whatever, try and cover up your sweatiness, all right? So this is how you would prepare. You would show up on your wedding day, and you would be like slick, covered up in oil. I mean, maybe not that much, but, you know, you could tell. So the songwriter is literally looking at the king. Imagine him standing there, and he's looking at him and saying, you have been anointed with oil. Like, he sees and smells this oily, fragrant skin on the king. And he makes this poetic connection to the fact that this is a symbol of God's anointing over this king that the, the, the writer of this psalm sees a bigger picture, that this king has been chosen to rule God's people, to uphold the law, to guide them into righteousness, and this oil is the symbol of what's going on. So he, he literally stands there and sees that and makes this connection. I can just imagine standing there in this moment at the wedding ceremony. The songwriter makes the place of where they are so vivid, He talks about the fragrant oils. And then in verses 8 to 9, he talks about the stringed instruments in the ivory palace, the the beauty of the decorations of the place that they are in, the daughters of kings who are there to honor them and to sit in the wedding party. The the queen, the princess herself, decked out in gold. It's like he pauses at this moment at the end of verse 9 to take it all in. His sense of smell is illuminated by those fragrant oils. He stops for a moment to smell the myrrh, the aloes, the cassia. His sense of touch is pleased by the smooth and cool ivory that decorates the palace. He marvels at the glory of the place that they are in and how beautiful it is. His eyes are caught by the sparkle of the gold jewelry that is being worn. He marvels at the, the, the king and the, the, the bride and the, the bridesmaids who are there and look so perfect and beautiful in their best clothes. You can see, it's like we can smell and we can feel and we can see the moment here at this ceremony in our mind's eye. And now is when the songwriter turns to address the bride at this most pivotal moment. This is verses 10 to 15. This, this psalmist turns to the bride, and I can just imagine this. Master lyricist taking a, a small step in the direction of the bride as a gesture that he cares, that he wants to speak directly to her. I can imagine him stooping down a little, with his tired eyes smiling through his grey beard, maybe he has a cane, and he peers into the eyes of the bride. It's one of those moments when this wise sage speaks and you can feel it's going to pierce to the heart. And when he looks the bride in the eye, he sees fear. He sees uncertainty. This hint that something's not right. Because I don't know if you caught this as we read the passage the first time around, but this bride is a foreigner. She's converting to God's people, to be a part of Israel. So as he looks at her and she's marrying into the people of Israel, he says these words to her. Look at verse 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house. And the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of people. Look, this wise old songwriter encourages her to completely forsake her people in her old life. Her loyalty is now with the king and the people of God. She can't continue in her old ways and serve the gods of her former people. He is saying to her that she must pledge allegiance to the Lord and become part of a new people. And he encourages her to fully submit to her husband, the king, as a symbolic gesture of belonging to the people of God whom this man is called to rule. And the result is that of her complete devotion is that the, uh, to the king and God's people is that the people of Tyre will bring her great gifts. Tyre was a, a major trading post in ancient Phoenicia, and so the richest of people lived there, and they were going to bring her gifts and seek her favor. Now, the scene moves from a direct address to the bride to this moment of the processional of the bridal party. This is one of my favorite moments in a wedding. It's like he's recounting the glory of what happened when the bride and her bridesmaids came in. Look at verse 13 again. I want to read this again. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. I love this moment. It's all led up to years of preparation, months of planning. Everyone is there, and there's the bride at the top of the aisle. Everyone turns and looks and sees her beauty. And she comes with gladness, with joy. Now the last conclusion here. The songwriter turns to address the king again and talks about he will have sons and his kingdom will last forever and that the songwriter, as he writes this song, is going to cause his name to be revered over generations. And you would think, as we end this psalm, that this is the end of the song. It's not. This is not the end of this psalm. We just walked through this incredibly beautiful wedding song and saw how the songwriter spoke to the groom and he spoke to the bride of this ancient king and, and, and yet there is something that is so much grander and greater of purpose and meaning to this psalm. Because here's the reality of this king who it was written to every king that has existed in ancient Israel, and indeed every ruler and king and president and politician ever since, that none have lived up to this psalm. None have been thoroughly gracious in their speech. None have gone to to fight for the pure motivations of truth and humility and meekness and righteousness. None have a throne that lasts forever. None have wielded a scepter of uprightness. None have completely loved righteousness and hated wickedness. This is why we have to understand this old psalm in light of a new song. This is why we must look for who could possibly be the king that we long for. The king of Psalm 45. And you know what? The key to understanding this is the person of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what I mean. If you talk about having gracious speech, God poured out his grace by the words of Jesus like no other time in human history. Luke 4.22 says this about Jesus. It'll be up on the screen. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. You see, how Jesus cared for the needy, how he healed the sick, how he delivered demon-possessed people, how he rebuked the Pharisees, how he taught his disciples was with the utmost grace. Grace from God himself. And you know what? Jesus is the mighty warrior who fights for truth and meekness and righteousness. The Apostle John says that Jesus was full of truth. He calls Jesus faithful and true. And yet, how he fought for truth was with humility, with meekness. He went and washed feet. He came to serve and not to be served. Jesus went to the cross to die in your place and mine. All this... For the cause of righteousness. God's justice satisfied in Christ's death on our behalf. Paul wrote this in Second Corinthians. This will also be on the screen. He said this about Jesus and righteousness. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let me ask you. Who else can make people fall down and surrender? No one but the victorious and resurrected Jesus. That's who. Who else sits at the right hand of God and will reign on David's throne forever and ever? No one but King Jesus. Who else has perfectly loved righteousness and perfectly hated wickedness? No one but the sinless Savior, Jesus. And who else has been anointed by God to be the rightful ruler and judge of all. No one but Jesus. You see, Jesus is the true king that we long for, the only wise king, and you know what? We are his bride. If you read the New Testament, you'll see that the church is called the bride of Christ over and over again, the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth, it's ancient Greek city, he said these words to them. It'll be on the screen as well. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul is imagining himself like the father of the bride, like Steve Martin. 90s. Okay, anybody from the 90s? Okay. He's imagining himself as the father of the bride, working to protect his daughter, mature her, keep her pure so that he can give the church's hand in marriage to her true love, Jesus Christ. That's the image. And later, later if you look at the rest of the New Testament, later in the book of Revelation, The Apostle John envisions the end of time and he sees a great multitude singing about Jesus and the church these words from Revelation 19. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. He later says about the church, calling it the New Jerusalem, in Revelation 21, this Holy city, he says this I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This is the image of the church. Now, we have to stop here for a moment, though. What does it mean to be the bride of Christ? I, mean, I can tell you that that's the metaphor. But why use this metaphor to talk about our relationship with Jesus? I think the answer lies in this psalm. Psalm 45 to help us to understand this. Remember how the songwriter addressed the bride in verses 10 to 12. You remember what he said and how he, he stooped down and he looked in her eye and he saw what she was afraid to do and encouraged her to commit. Let me give you an idea and a sense of what it would be like if this songwriter wrote to you. If this psalmist was alive today and was writing this song about Jesus and the church, he might have something like this to say to you. My children, my children, My dear, dear children whom I love, please listen. I plead with you that you would give me your ear one last time before you embark on your own. Please weigh carefully what I have to say because it is born out of hard lessons and the wisdom of age and experience. I'm compelled to challenge you because I love you and I want what's best for you. Walk away from your old life. I beg. Run away from your old self. Before you stands your king, Jesus, who wants your utter devotion. Your old life with its false gods, its empty promises, its self-centered priorities, And its bondage to sin has complete... You have to completely renounce this or else you will not, cannot be faithful to your new husband. You see, Jesus is your Lord. Bow to him alone. If you try to keep grasping for your old loyalties and practice your old habits to embrace your old life, He will reject you. You have to commit. You have to marry Jesus and pledge your exclusive devotion to him. And you know what will happen? You will be blessed beyond your wildest dreams. And I don't mean blessing that is centered on you and what you want. It's nothing that you have earned It is because you are now wedded to the true king. The only gracious and wise and powerful and righteous and perfect king. Listen to my plea, please. There is no better place and no better person. Can you hear the desperation and the heart of that songwriter? Can you feel it? Can you see how the image of being married, of being a bride to Jesus, requires our utter devotion? What strikes me is after the psalmist writes those words of challenge, of encouragement, of looking in the eye of that bride and saying, go for it, he then recounts the entrance of the bride into the room. And look at what he says. Don't miss this here in verse 15 He says that the bride and the bridesmaids walk down the aisle toward the king with joy and gladness with joy and gladness Remember that he had just sensed that fear and trepidation, that moment where the bride is imagining, oh my goodness, look at what I'm getting myself into. I am, have to walk away from all of that. And he speaks this truth into her life. And then the psalmist goes into this, re- this line of, his, of the bride and of the, the wedding party entering the room now with joy and gladness and not fear. She is thrilled to take the plunge. No more fear, no sorrow, no regret about leaving her old life. She's ready to die to her old self and embrace a new life with this new king. So let me ask you, what is your heart like when you come to King Jesus? Are you holding something back? Are are you afraid to turn away from your old life and let it go? Are you still entangled with your old loyalties? Things that are not of God's kingdom. Friends, listen to the plea of this psalm. Come to your king with joy and gladness. Only this king, Jesus, is worth utterly dying to your old self. Only this king, Jesus, is able to give you a new life that will satisfy and don't just waltz down the aisle. Run down the aisle to Him. Run and never turn back. Let's pray. Jesus is only by your grace that we have been chosen as your bride. Lord, I pray that if there is doubt and, and hanging on to our old life, if some of us have sitting here thinking, I can't give him my exclusive devotion. Jesus, I can't give him my whole life. Lord, I pray that you would break through that lie i pray lord that you would impress on our hearts that we are so privileged by your grace to come to you as the bride of jesus and pledge our utter devotion to you and we can come with joy and gladness because of the mercy that you have given us lord because of the blessing it is to have your righteousness, Jesus, cover us instead of our wickedness and sin. Lord, make us joyful as we come to your throne. In Jesus' name, amen.